The Bob Murphy Show, episode 288. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome back to the bob murphy show this episode is going to be me responding to a recent claim from Liz Wolf of Reason and then Dave Smith's rejoinder. The context for their exchange had to do with Liz had a an unflattering take on RFK Jr. And then Dave was upset by it. And then, gracious guy that he is, he had Liz come onto his podcast and defend her honor. So it is from that episode of Part of the Problem that the following clip emerges. Here we go. I wanted to ask about one of the things that you said in the video that I yeah. thought that certainly had me raise an eyebrow and certainly um, like I didn't know much about you. I've seen you on a couple different shows and things, but having this conversation with you, I already kind of have more insight into where you're coming from. But why did you kind of you said something? I don't remember the exact line, but it was something about how he kind of portrays this image that the establishment is corrupt. Yeah at best and evil at worst. And yeah. he kind of winks at the idea that there are puppet masters pulling the strings. I mean, just after the conversation we've kind of had, that seems to describe you. Like what, I mean, all of us, doesn't it? Isn't that, isn't it pretty undeniable that the establishment is corrupt at best? I think that the RFK view of the world, and I'm curious about where you fall on this. I want to understand it better. I think that the RFK view of the world is one that, generally speaking, believes that these people in positions of power who are abusing their authority are malicious. They are malicious and they are coordinated. This is, I think, very similar to the Alex Jones worldview, which I find Alex Jones super fascinating. I actually went to his movie premiere in Austin when I was super, super pregnant. So I think that was my first, you know, inappropriate or controversial parenting decision as my baby's ears were developing. The first thing he was hearing was like Alex Jones's crazy voice. Um, but it was super interesting. It was the movie premiere. Glenn Greenwald interviewed Alex. He was there in person. You know, I wrote about it a little bit for reason and basically wrote, it wasn't convincing, but, you know, big tech should not deplatform Alex Jones. It's totally permissible for people to be exposed to Alex Jones's viewpoints. I was exposed to Alex Jones's viewpoints and they weren't compelling to me. But I think I, I was made better for understanding his mindset a little bit more. So I think the RFK worldview is, you know, believes that there was sprawling, coordinated, malicious action between all of these different people in positions of power abusing their authority. My worldview is much more along the lines of people in positions of power are frequently incompetent, bad at judging trade-offs, and they have awful incentives. And I think that leads to bad outcomes. I think frequently I consider them to be more bumbling fools than outright malicious or evil forces. I think they are too incompetent, too inept, generally speaking, to be highly coordinated. Um, I don't super believe in, you know, some of the things that RFK asserts are just truly nuts. I mean, he thinks that the CIA killed his dad and his uncle, despite the fact that the guy who killed uh, <laughs> his, his dad is sitting in a jail cell 
he basically was a, a huge part of the exoneration campaign to get him out. I mean, do you find the sort of sprawling, malicious actor coordinated people in power worldview to be convincing? Yes. I think that it's not as simple as that. And I think that there are there's lots of competing power interests within the halls of power. I think they don't always get there. But the idea that elites conspire to do evil things is just, I mean, I think that's just a fact of reality and always has been. They're not always completely successful with it. But for example, was there a group of neoconservatives who in the 1990s under the banner of the Project for a New American Century, conspired to get the war in Iraq done and then took over all the positions of power in the George W. Bush administration and then killed a million people with this stupid war? Absolutely there were. Are there weapons companies who fund think tanks who then lobby for every single war? Yes, 100%. And what are these other than evil actors conspiring to achieve evil means. And then you had another line in there where you said that, you know, like libertarians should kind of be skeptical that governments, because they're so bumbling and stupid and inefficient, like that they could even pull something like this off. But like, I mean, governments pulled off the Holocaust. Governments pulled off two world wars. Governments, I mean, like governments actually, I think, are very effective at pulling off mass events. They're just always very, very evil. Okay, so there you have it. And the reason I'm responding to this is this comes up a lot, right? That lots of people over the years have denigrated so-called conspiracy theories. It is incidentally, well, let me finish the train of thought because if I don't finish the train of thought, I'm going to forget about it. They've denigrated so-called conspiracy theories from a libertarian or even more specifically Austrian perspective saying, oh, normally we talk about how incompetent and bumbling the government is and how they can't get anything right. But yet they're supposed to pull off this vast conspiracy. Give me a break, guys. And incidentally, the tangent I was about to go on when I caught myself is I've been having a lot of fun lately just poking people when they use the word or the term conspiracy theory. And I'll say, uh, so the official 9-11 report says there was a conspiracy among 19 hijackers to go uh, unleash some mayhem. So you don't agree with that, right? You don't agree with the 9-11 report because it's a conspiracy theory. Or what's your hypothesis for how Caesar was killed? Did it involve a conspiracy? Because then that means you hold a conspiracy theory of Caesar's assassination. And I just go through like that and it's good fun. And what's funny is that... (laughs) especially my good friend, George Selgin, he just was really bristling on Twitter about it and just kept saying to me, no, Bob, when we say conspiracy theory, we don't mean merely a theory that involves a conspiracy. What we mean is, and obviously what it really means is a theory you think is silly and goofy. That's really what it means. And it, well, and it involves nefarious coordination behind the scenes by powerful people. If you said some, I don't know, Care Bears got together and stole my car keys and that's why I was late for work, your boss probably wouldn't say, don't give me that conspiracy theory. It really wouldn't make sense. But in general, yes, conspiracy theory, really what it means is a theory that we think is so palpably absurd, we don't even need to go look at the evidence. This, come on, I'm going to dignify that with an inquiry your conspiracy theory, which again, does not mean a theory involving a conspiracy. It would be like if you're like, yes, this guy driving with his red car and you're like, 
what, a car that was red? You go, no, it just, it was really loud and obnoxious. And I use the term red car when people drive vehicles like that. Okay, so as I say, over the years, I have heard this complaint a lot and I'm trying to put my finger on it. And just for whatever reason, when Liz and Dave had this exchange, I finally said, you know what? I need to go and publicly talk about this. So it could be construed that I'm here reacting to Dave or saying Dave answered incorrectly. That's not really the point here. Like what he said was fine, but I want to try to reconcile the positions. In other words, I think there's more to be said. And by the way, the way Dave handled that, I did a very similar thing. I was at, I'm not going to say the person's name just if for some reason that would be awkward for the person, so I won't. But years ago, this guy I know arranged for me to go and give a talk at his, I can't remember exactly, but it was like a civics center or something. All right. So it was like people who were rah, rah, you know, patriots. Okay. And, and so I got up and I gave my standard. I was kind of young at the time. I'd like, I think I had my PhD, but I was probably still in my twenties. So I'm not getting my timelines mixed up. All right. So, so I get up there and I give my speech about the government screwing everything up and the Federal Reserve is terrible and this climate change stuff and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, my standard stump speech, because there was a period where I was doing after dinner talks a lot. And so this was one of those. And so then in the Q&A, we were hitting it off well. The crowd liked me. It was good. Friendly bunch. Had some laughs. And so then we're winding down and it's literally, you can just tell what the way the timing is and the clock and everything that this is going to be the last question. And like I said, I had had the crowd with me the whole time. I probably scared them with QE or something with inflation predictions that would turn out to not be true for several years. And so this guy asks me at the very end, last question, hey, you know, Dr. Murphy, uh, you know, you've been pretty critical. There. Is there anything the government does right? Or I don't know if he's, he didn't <laughs> say mix his syllables there, but I kind of did because I couldn't remember if he said well or right. Just the way the guy was, like the kind of character I was making there. I think he would have said, does anything the government gets right or does? But what he was getting across was, is there anything that the government is good at? Maybe that's what he even said. I don't remember. And so I paused for a second and I said, yep, killing people and breaking stuff. Thank you, everybody. And they all, and I left. Okay. And then we're walking out and the guy who had arranged for me to be there, who was an ANCAP, says to me in the car ride home, you know, actually... I think you conceded too much there that no, the government's actually not good at blowing things up and killing people. What he meant was compared to mercenaries or something. And, and I said, yeah, you're, actually you're right. But I just felt like I knew I could end there. And I, I just read the room and I decided I made a judgment call. I would sacrifice some purity and the possibility of appealing to six kids in the back who may have been budding anarcho-capitalists. And I went with the safe joke. Okay, because also I thought it just the way that present the thing had gone, I knew I had the people and I felt like I should concede something instead of saying, no, no, the government can't do anything. And so that's why I did that. All right. So that's what we're picking up here. That's kind of the main point of what this episode is going to be is I want to go through and remind you or explain if you never heard this case before that no, the government actually is not good at blowing things up and killing people. Okay, there's this, I don't know, 
this aura around the military that, oh yeah, I mean, they're not nice guys, but they go and get stuff done, right? And like it was even if you've seen the Oppenheimer movie, there's a kind of a cool scene where Matt Damon's character, I forget who the historical figure is that he was playing, like I think he was like a colonel or something. The guy from the military that was like overseeing the operation that Oppenheimer in a sense kind of had to report to. And Oppenheimer, you know, they're saying, well, where are we going to have this facility? And Oppenheimer says, oh, I know the place. And he takes him out to, I guess, what is it, Los Alamos and shows him. Because originally there's nothing out there. That's the whole point is they were going in the middle of nowhere, a place where he used to go horseback riding or something. And, and he says, this is where we'll do it. And he's like, okay, we'll build you a city. And then gets into his Jeep and drives off or something. Right. So this is kind of like, oh, wow, the U.S. military, they can just go build a city. Wow. Those, but no, with the same resources at their disposal, private contractors would have built a much cooler city or a city that made more sense or something. You got what I mean? That with all these things, it's like, yeah. Then this goes to my pamphlet. If you've never read it, you really should. My booklet, Chaos Theory. So, of course, I'll put links to all this stuff, folks. It's bobmurphyshow.com slash 288 is where you want to go. But you can make a standard case using Austro-Libertarian arguments for why a region with just a stipulated amount of natural resources, technological know-how, population, the skill sets of the various individuals that who live there, how do you maximize their effectiveness at repelling a military invasion is you let them have private property and sound money, free markets, and let the market process help determine what the optimal response is to an impending military invasion. Just like if you want to say, what's the best way to feed your people? You don't say, well, because that's so important, we can't leave that to the market process. We have to have experts come in and figure out where to plant the wheat and where to plant the apple trees and blah, 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 blah. And you know, we'll, we'll let relatively trivial things like car production and video game production and things like that. Yeah, the profit and loss test can be used to guide those industries, but food is really important. So that's why we got to have the government right now. That's the way you have starvation and a lack of innovation and certainly not a lot of variety in terms of the products. Like you're not going to have 16 different breakfast cereals if the government's in charge of food. All right, so likewise, if keeping foreign armies from conquering your country or your region, if it's not called a country, is really important to you, then you want to have the most robust system in charge of that enterprise. If markets work better at producing cars and computers and clothes, then why wouldn't you want markets in charge of military defense and I'm not going to rehash all the arguments right here because this episode is not supposed to be the case for private provision of defense services per se. Really what I'm trying to do here is to show that the ostensible tension between thinking the government or there could be conspiracies involved in the government and gee, well, normally we say that states are good at things like that tension need not be there. Or I guess rather what I want to say is the attempt to try to get rid of that tension by saying, well, no, there's other areas where states really are good. For example, it builded up you know, really powerful militaries and going and 
wreaking havoc and stuff. That no, that's an example of things the government does well. And I'm saying that no, that's not. And by the way, I don't mean oh they occasionally kill innocent civilians. That's not nice. That's not. I mean that that's a true statement. <laughs> Those are both true statements. But that's not what I mean. I am saying even on narrowly construed military terms, state-run militaries are ludicrously inefficient and bloated and blunt instruments. The reason they seem so impressive is because they have gigantic budgets and no accountability, and they are engaged in institutional lying. So that's partly why there's this perception even among anarcho-capitalists that that, oh yeah, the government can't make a bridge and certainly can't teach kids how to read, but if you want to go blow up somebody else's army, state's pretty good at that. So that's what I'm first going to try to address is that issue, just to say that, no, it's not that the state is good at that. So one thing that it's hard to quantify is state-run militaries are incredibly wasteful when it comes to their resources. And this is because they don't have a hard budget constraint. Well, I mean, they do have a budget constraint, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is they face the same problem that other government agencies do of a use it or lose it mentality, right? It's not that there are shareholders of the Department of Defense and if they figure out a way to make military jets that are of comparable quality, but they save $30 million, it's not that the generals and whoever else involved in those decisions gets an extra $30 million in their dividend payments that quarter. The way in a private sector analog, that would be the case. Okay, so that element is there. So then, you know, there's fame. By the way, one time I referred to $600 toilet seats in some pop piece I wrote. It was like for the Freeman or something. And then some guy tracked me down and wrote me in a letter taking me out to the woodshed saying that, you know, you libertarians need to stop using that as one of your trump cards, that that's very misleading. If you go and look at it, it was like a toilet that was, what was it? Was it for an airplane? I think it was like a toilet that was supposed to be in an airplane. And so they, it was designed so that like if the plane did a flip or something, the contents wouldn't come out. <laughs> so it was something like that. So in other words, the guy was saying, yes, it's probably more expensive than it would be in a free market version, but it's not like it was literally just a regular toilet seat cover that they were paying $600 for. That that's You should stop using that. So, okay, fine. I didn't actually go investigate it, but I took its word for it. And I have never used it, not ironically, since. Okay, but in general, yes, of course the military has huge cost overruns and stuff that in the private sector would go for one price goes for a much higher price when it comes to the military's budget and for the same reason as other government agencies. And it also is incredibly wasteful when it comes just to men and specifically if there's conscription. By the way, I just want to forget, it's interesting because when I was getting ready to do this episode, I was jotting down notes. My oldest son and I had just watched the um, fantastic movie starring Liam Neeson and Michael Collins, the movie appropriately enough, it's called Michael Collins. So if you like historical films, check that one out. I don't know how faithful it is to the actual history, but it was a very well-acted film. You might think, 
this would be a good time for me to do my Liam Neeson impression. I haven't watched the movie enough and studied it enough to do it there, but I will, since I teased you, I will do my go-to standby from my favorite movie starring Liam Neeson called Rob Roy. So in this scene, Rob's children are asking him about the fact that the McGregors used to have a noble heritage that was taken away from them. Would the McGregors ever be kings again? All men with honor are kings, but not all kings have honor. What is honor? Honor is what no man can give you and none can take away. Honor is a man's gift to himself. Thank you. Thank you. I will be signing autographs around the back. Also, Rob Roy, if you haven't seen it, go see that. Again, don't know how historically accurate that is, but it's a good movie. All right, so in Michael Collins, which is the story of a guy in the Irish Republican Army who does a really effective job at using a small amount of men and materials in order to really stick it to the British occupiers. It's funny in the beginning how he's, what his guys are going out and they're going around killing. What they're doing is they're infiltrating, they realize, you know, the British are coming in and they're blind. They're like a blind giant. And so in order for the British to infiltrate the Irish society and figure out who the troublemakers are, they need Irishmen to give them information. So they recruit native Irishmen to work for the British government and, you know, be their eyes and ears on the ground. And so it's those people that Michael Collins sends his men out to take out, like to let it be known, if you're Irish, do not collaborate with these British occupiers or you're done. Okay. And so early in the film, you know, his guys are going around and just doing like basically mob hits on people. And so the newspaper, like, and so the, the papers are reporting it breathlessly, like, <gasps> Shocking shootings in downtown Belfast, or I don't know if it's Belfast or where, where <laughs> these things were occurring. And so, and his men come up to him and, you know, give him the paper, thinking he's going to be proud of them. He's reading it and he goes, you know, so-and-so, da-da-da, riddled with bullets. And he looks up and he said, why riddled? And he said, well, you know, we've only got so many bullets. No more riddling. Something like that, right? And like that says, and then they're leaving. And he goes, you did good lads or whatever. Okay, but the point being, he was mad that you're wasting, you don't need to shoot the guy eight times, just a couple kill shots and then get out of there. But we have to really conserve our ammunition here. This is, we're in this for the long haul, right? So that's not the way government run militaries operate, certainly not ones with Western budgets. Okay, so circling back to the uh, issue of conscription, right? So you can see it with, material, but really, really where the waste is just absolutely appalling when it comes to state-run armies is with the infantry. Like when I would see those movies about historical battles, when the guys would just line up facing each other and then just pick up their gut and just start mowing each other down, it was just, oh, like just the waste. I mean, they do it in other movies, like not just government-run ones too, like Every there was a period where it was like every movie in the theater, whether it was Lord of the Rings or Marvel films or whatever, it just involved people stupidly just lining up and staring each other down and then rah, and they just run at each other and just start it's just come on. So you, you have my word. Even if I ever give up my pacifism and become a military commander, we are not fighting like that, men. 
we will be smarter. I value your lives more highly than that. All right, it would be tactics like, you know, stuff Mel Gibson's group does in The Patriot, when they're just like kind of hiding in the woods and doing quick, quick attacks and then melting away before the British can really get their bearings. Like that's the kind of stuff that you do when you really care about conserving your personnel. All right, so in that respect then, and by the way, it's not merely a humanitarian thing. It's wasteful to use your infantry like that. You don't, without market prices, you're groping blindly in the dark, right? Just like the MMTers in a strictly economic context, they're not doing any favors for the economy by giving the government a printing press and saying, you can print as much money as you want. We just ask you to monitor CPI. And if it starts overheating, then you know you got to settle down a little bit. That, no, that doesn't open up new vistas for us as a society. It doesn't allow for the provision of more health insurance or high-speed rail or blah, 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 that, oh, good thing we're not stuck on this hard money system where everybody's got to pay for stuff, even the government, with money that's dug up out of the ground. What an archaic system. No, money prices mean something. Hard money keeps everybody honest and not just for ethical reasons, but there's a reason that money serves a purpose. All right. There's a social function of having money and having accountants run calculations after the fact to see was this operation profitable or not. And you partially defeat that system if one agency or one group in society has a printing press and they can just willy nilly inject more money into the system. So, likewise, if you buy what I'm saying there, likewise to say to the government, oh, if you really have something that's important, like military defense, then you're allowed to point guns at humans, at you know, workers, and force them to follow your orders so long as you say, oh, it's to defend us. And you don't even have to pay a wage to convince them to do it voluntarily. Okay, so, you know, just regular market production, the case against socialism, the central planners, if they don't have market prices, they don't know the true cost of the resources they are using. So if they make a bunch of cars, they know technologically what goes into it, how much steel and rubber and glass and blah, blah, blah. But they can't say even after the fact, even if they conduct surveys and such, they don't know if those resources could have been better used elsewhere. And so market prices are like the ration tickets. It's the way that society's scarce resources are husbanded. It's the communication mechanism by which possible users of those resources know this resource has this amount of scarcity involved. So if you're going to use it, exercise this much care. Okay, so something that's really, really expensive, people economize on it and they only use it if they really need to to make whatever the product or services that they're selling. Okay, so human lives are very valuable. And if the government military is allowed to just conscript soldiers and just basically equip them and, quote, pay them not very much at all, or, you know, some cases they don't pay them anything, they just give them enough food and stuff so they don't collapse on the field. But if they're not paying them, all things considered, enough to get them to volunteer, then that's the signal that they're using those workers inefficiently. And again, you want that to happen. 
right? You want there to be a mechanism to make it apparent to the people making such decisions that there is a genuine cost involved. You're not doing society any favors by making workers seem to be free to the people planning military operations. Just like if you said to the military, you can use as much gasoline as you want and don't have to pay for it, that actually is not good. That's not efficient. You're hampering, even looking at the war effort on its own terms, you're hampering it, not to mention the broader economic objectives of which just military defense is obviously an important component, but not the only thing. So I, besides chaos theory, which has my essays, private law and private defense, I also wrote much later in a journal, a piece extending the analysis. So I'll link to that too, of course. Again, bobmurphyshow.com slash 288, folks. And in there, let me first make the more modest case that Mises would talk about this. He would say, I think he said no capitalist nation has ever lost a war to a socialist nation, something like that. All right. And then you wonder, well, what about Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union and World War II? And there he said it was Len, was it Len Lease? Yeah. And just, he was saying that he thinks the Soviets would have fallen had it not been for all the supplies that the West was sending to the Soviets to help them. Okay. And obviously Mises doesn't think Nazi Germany is a bastion of laissez-faire capitalism, but Mises did think that their intervention was less significant than the Soviets in terms of distorting the economy. Okay. So he makes claims of that whether you like it or not, fine, but I'm just giving you his worldview. So he was not an anarcho-capitalist, Mises. So he did think in World War II, for example, the U.S. government needed to increase its footprint in the economy, to say the least. But what he argued was the proper way for the government to effectively transform the economy from peacetime to a wartime economy was that, hey, you raise taxes and borrow a bunch of money and then go buy stuff on the open market. So you don't impose rationing. You don't have the government just take over the steel industry or something and say, oh, well, we need to for the war effort. No, have the government raise its funds the way it always does, even in peacetime through taxes and borrowing. And then if you need stuff, you go buy it. And yes, in practice, because taxes are higher, interest rates are higher, there's more, quote, crowding out because the funds that are being saved by households are being diverted into government bonds because the deficit's way bigger. And then when the government goes and spends that money, the prices of things needed for the war effort will go through the roof and the private sector doesn't have that much left over anyway now because so much is getting siphoned off by taxes and loans to the government. So you still achieve the same outcome from a 30,000 foot view that all the steel and rubber and blah, blah, blah is not going into car production anymore. And it's mostly getting diverted into making tanks and bombers and such, but you still have the efficiency, the cost cutting, the competition that emanates from a standard market process as opposed to just turning it into a quasi-socialist enterprise while the war is going on. Okay, so that's what Mises said there. So I just extended that a lot in, again, my essay on private defense and the pamphlet chaos theory, but then in this journal article, and the po- some of the points I made in the journal article that are relevant here is I was saying, okay, even things like the legal treatment of what 
you're doing to sort of hamper invading troops, right? So normally it's common for militaries to do things like, you know, you got foreign army that's coming in. Maybe you're going to like blow up the bridges so that it's harder to blow up the roads and whatnot so that the advancing troops get slowed down. And I was saying, if you want to do that in an anarcho-capitalist society, yeah, you can go ahead and do it. But then the defense companies that decide that's the right thing to do have to pay for the damages, right? They can't, if they blow up somebody's bridge, they have to pay compensation to the bridge owner. They don't, can't just say, well, it's wars going on, okay? And that's a good thing, right? That's not tying the hands of the defenders of the anarchist city. That's a good thing. You don't want your own citizens to have carte blanche to start destroying your own property. If you're a society based on freedom and private property and such, and you want to defend this invader, the reason your society is so vibrant in the first place is because you have private property and respect for the rule of law. So you don't want to throw away your chief advantages when there's a crisis. Or it'd be like if Zorro put down his sword every time a fight ensued. Because he said, well, this is serious. Let me put this down. I'm like, you know, no. So what does an anarcho-capitalist society have going for it? The advantages of strict adherence to private property rights. That's your chief advantage, your strength. So rely on that. And so specifically, maybe it will help your war effort if a lot of the bridges and roads are maintained so that, you know, the people resupplying your troops on the front lines, keeping the invaders at bay, can more quickly go back and forth to the factories or to the farms or whatever to bring more supplies to the front lines to your troops. And so if somebody just went around and blew up all the bridges and all the roads, maybe that would hurt your efforts too. And so you say, well, gee, well, how do we decide? Well, you don't just do a blanket thing like blow up all the bridges. You have a case-by-case analysis and you decide on the margin, is blowing up this bridge worth it? And would you, how could you know that, Bob? You don't just go ask some guy who went to West Point, how the heck would he know? No, you need market prices to guide you. And so specifically, the mechanism, I think, they would come to the fore in a situation like this in a free society that was well-developed, a very capitalistic, modern Western society that just fully privatized, would be insurance companies. So just like they, if you have a skyscraper, you'd have insurance policies in case there's a fire. You'd also have insurance policies in case enemy tanks come in and destroy it or take it over. And so the insurance companies now who would have billions of dollars of premiums coming in would set prices and they would say, you know, if they could quantify, in other words, the value, like they could say, if you take out an enemy bomber, we'll pay you whatever, $3 million. And so then that price would percolate around and then private individuals and companies and whatnot would try to brainstorm and figure out how do we provide that service? If there's a $3 million bounty for every long-range enemy bomber they bring down, right? So it's not putting all their eggs in one basket. There'd be competition, right? Maybe some guy somewhere would have a crazy, what seemed to be a crazy idea, but he tries it out or whatever. And like maybe he's flashing lights or something up at, or he's, I don't know, sends up some plane with a banner that has a mind-boggling puzzle. And the enemy pilots just get so bedazzled by it that they crash, right? I'm obviously making up goofy stuff. I'm just saying off the wall idea, if somebody wants to fund that, they can try it, 
right? It's not that you have to run up the chain of command and a few generals have to approve everything. Okay, so that's the way it would work. And so with something like a bridge that, yeah, you could run the calculations and, you know, the insurance companies, assessors, they could try to calculate and say, okay, well, here's where the enemy tanks are. You know, they're advancing at such and such. So yeah, if you could take that bridge out, we would pay you $30 million because we estimate that over the next six months, that would save us $30 million worth of compensation claims, blah, 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 blah. And then you could go check and say, well, how much is the bridge worth? How much would I have to pay? Da, 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 da. Okay, so that's the way these things get ironed out. Because again, it's not enough to just say, well, gee, would that help the war effort or not? That's just like saying, would it be good if we had another car? Well, yeah. If there's no cost to it, of course, yeah, have another car. Give it to somebody who needs a car. Great. That's not the question. It doesn't mean the factories right now cranking out cars should produce one more car. Because you have to say, what's the cost of that? What are we giving up? What could we have had instead? Okay, so that's what markets do is they help entrepreneurs and well, everybody make decisions on the margin about more or less of this activity. And that's what you want. That's the way to maximize the effectiveness of your defensive capabilities. Okay, so again, it, I mean, if you've ever read the accounts of World War I, and then some of those battles, like when they're trying to take a fort or so, oh, and they, they would just, like some of them, they called them meat grinders. Like if you just, I mean, you, you can understand like how they fell into that equilibrium where it's just, in a sense, like sending just columns of men marching into gunfire, just ludicrous and horrifying. Like, like Satan literally rubbing his hands in glee. Like, look at what I've tricked them into doing. Just awful. And that would never happen if at least one of the opponents in a contest like that had to pay market wages for their troops, right? That, that's, that, that situation, you don't have volunteers doing that. That's something that requires conscription, right? I mean, once the, the word gets out, okay, so if someone wants to say there was some battle where in the beginning it was a bunch of volunteers, okay, but I don't think they knew what they were getting into. Once the word spread that, yeah, this is what goes on, if you go out to the battlegrounds, then no, people aren't signing up for that. Also, too, even in so-called volunteer militaries, it's not volunteer the way you go in and work in a Google is voluntary, right? If you sign a contract and go work at Google and you show up in the first day or whatever, the hundredth day on the job, you're expected to do something where you realize there's a 30% chance you're going to lose your arm. You can just legally walk out and say, no, I'm done with that. Whereas the way when you have, you know, you sign up for the army in the U.S. right now, it doesn't work like that, even though it's, quote, a volunteer army. Folks, let's take a break from the action to explain what you can do to help make a difference. If you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute, you'll see some interesting offers there and you know what to do. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so... I think I've hammered that point enough to say that actually the state is not good at waging war. Right? Just look, classic blunder, you know, the Maginot line, for example. They put their, all their eggs in one basket, oops, and then the Nazis just go right around them. Okay, all kinds of stuff like that. Another example I detailed in Chaos Theory was the mechanism, apparently the torpedoes that the U.S. subs used in the beginning, I think, of World War II, 
the whole mechanism. There's something wrong with that. So that apparently if the sub commanders, if you hit a direct hit, right, you see the enemy ship, you shoot the torpedo at it, and boom, direct hit, and it wouldn't explode. And so the commanders realized through experience that you had to kind of shoot it at an angle and have a glancing blow, and that was the way the thing would explode. And the commanders, you know, were relaying back to the Admiralty through the chain of command saying, you got to fix these torpedoes. They're not worth, something's wrong. And the manufacturer was denying it, and they just dragged their feet and took long, and finally they fixed it. But it was like, a long time afterwards, so f- for a while, the sub-commanders are sitting there using crappy, defective products and having to deliberately try to not have a direct hit so the thing might blow up, all right? So stuff like that in a market with open competition would be less likely to happen. Not just open competition among the torpedo manufacturers, but against the different companies providing submarine attack and defense services, right? There wouldn't just be one organization that had all the subs that were tasked with either hunting enemy merchant ships or repelling foreign subs from your sea lanes or whatever. Like, no, there'd be competition. Just like there's not one company that provides all the food in a market economy. There's not one car company. Everything's got at least two companies. Even industries that seem to be, quote, natural monopolies typically have one dominant company and then one or two smaller companies nipping at their heels, but being there to keep them honest. Okay. So that's what you would have when it would come to the companies. It's not just companies providing the hardware, right? So you might say, well, yeah, right now in the US, you've got different defense companies, right? But it's still the same monolithic army or air force. I'm saying, no, there would be a bunch of competing air forces. And so if one did a poor job for whatever reason because they had bad planes that didn't do a good job getting or they trained their pilots poorly or whatever. They didn't have the integration of forces, having satellites to do blah, blah, blah and give good guidance and recon or whatever. So the pilots knew where to fly the planes and da, 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 or they, yeah, the planes were great, but they didn't, the jets were great, but they didn't have really good missiles that they were carrying and all that stuff coming together. So then the dogfight, that company's, pilots come home, then those companies go out of business and the other ones gain market share. So there's not a matter of egos. That was another example that I put in the book that the allies did not do a convoy system early on in the war, right? Because I think that they were worried. So you're sending merchant ships into London, you know, trying to give them supplies and the German U-boats are taking them out. And so I, one obvious defensive strategy would be say, okay, instead of sending one, two ships at a time, let's send 50. Well, I don't know if it was 50. Let's send 20 with an escort that have some U.S. naval escorts, our own subs and other heavier ships. And we'll do that. And so the concern apparently was, well, no, because if we do that, then it'll be easier for the Germans to spot those convoys coming and then they'll like radio around and all send all of their U-boats and ambush them. But in practice, like the sea is so big, the ocean is so big, whether you have one or two ships by themselves or in a convoy of 30 or 40 in the big picture, when you're, you know, out middle of the ocean, the Germans are no more likely to see that than the other thing. And so you might as well have them all concentrated because what you don't want 
is if just some random U-boat commander sees two or three totally undefended merchants that they could just go take them out. All right, so, but again, this kind of thing where there were egos involved, that the military top brass made the decision early on we're not doing convoys, and they were just, the shipping was getting crushed, and then finally switched and went to the convoy system, and then it worked. But it took a really long time. And partly, I've read historians say it was because once they made that initial decision to then reverse it meant, oh, all the people that ended up dead from our original decision, that's kind of my fault because I was wrong and nobody wants to admit that. All right? But if you have competing companies who are trying different strategies, you don't need the person who screwed up in the beginning to admit he was wrong. No, his company just goes out of business and the people who were right all along expand market share, right? So it limits the ability of bruised egos to get people killed in a war. Okay, so let me just spend a few moments now circling back though that, okay, so what I've done here is to say, to argue that the way to try to resolve this apparent tension is not to say, yeah, yeah, you know, the government actually is good at some things like blowing things up and killing people. And so when we say the government's a bunch of bumbling fools and ho, 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 they're not good at anything. No, they're good at that. And so if they're good at that, maybe they're also good at whatever, cartelizing the banking system and propagandizing and trying to take over the world, that kind of stuff. So I don't think that's the right way to do it. But I do want to mention that, look, a lot of these alleged conspiracies, they involve, like for example, let's go back to the Liz Wolf thing, right? Specifically, she was mocking RFK Jr. and his, the sorts of conspiracy theories in which he traffics are things like, oh, these big pharma companies really were just helping to fuel the hysteria and paranoia over COVID-19 in order to fatten their profits. Okay, so there, that's a private sector organization, right? So nobody ever said private companies are bumbling idiots when it comes to marketing to boost sales, right? So prima facie, his theory that big pharma is working behind the scenes, you know, collaborating with the major media who are also privately owned. And these are the organizations and the big banks and da, 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 to try to... So one element in their plan is the cooperation of the government. And, you know, they're going to go ahead and implement those policies. But I guess what I mean is, what I'm trying to get at is, suppose... Big Pharma did try to implement the kind of conspiracy theory that an RFK Jr. is positing. And then Liz Wolf comes along and says, uh, we know from study of Austro-Libertarian principles that such an enterprise is bound to be riddled with inefficiencies and just goofy outcomes and incompetence and silly. Okay, look at what actually happened with the COVID-19 stuff in the U.S. in you know, 2020, 2021. It was ludicrous, right? It wasn't this slick, packaged, internally consistent set of guidelines and mandates. It wasn't like when I try to argue with Scott Sumner, like my joke is, I say, I think he's insane. But I mean, in the same way that like the people in the Terminator movies who were interrogating the, I forget the guy's name now, John Connor's biological father, whatever that guy was, the guy that goes back and he gets captured, if you remember, in the first Terminator movie, and the psychiatrist is evaluating him, and he's like, yeah, I mean, you know, because he's throwing all these questions, like, well, gee, why did you just bring back a weapon? 
And he's like, because it's got to be biological. You're not, we're wasting time. Sarah Connor's in danger. Right. So the psychiatrist obviously thought the guy was insane, but he was kind of marveling at like, what? Well, gee, it's hard for me to poke holes in his story. He's got it all thought out. Right. And so that's my joke with Scott Sumner is that if I were going to debate him, I would really want to take a long time to prepare because he's sharp and he's very intelligent and he has a host of facts at his command. He's internally consistent. It's just when he, you know, his system, his worldview, when it spits out things like the reason for the Great Recession was that the Fed had the tightest monetary policy since the Hoover administration. When you <laughs> saw that they took interest rates down to zero and tripled their balance sheet, or well, they doubled it at least. I don't know if they had a triple. I had to look at the figures to see how fast they tripled it. And I just say that, no, if you have to call that a tight monetary policy, like the tightest we've seen in decades, that that's an abusive language. That's not the way to think about it. Okay. So anyway, but I'm saying the COVID lockdown regime was not like that. They were flip-flopping daily. Their explanations made no sense. And then, of course, when the George Floyd riots happened, it all went out the window. Okay, so if there were a conspiracy involving private companies that wanted to maximize their profits and they sort of took in government agencies under their wing to involve them, wouldn't it look like what we just saw? Right? Okay. So I didn't just prove that it happened, but my point is just, I don't get where Liz Wolf is coming from when she's saying, well, no, I mean... If RFK Jr.'s theory were correct, we'd expect to see all kinds of incompetence where so clearly that no, that can happen. I mean, you guys have seen, I'm sure, some of these compilations they'll do. It, it's freaky the first couple of times you see it, when there's some like new talking point that comes out in the major news media, the corporate media, as Michael Malice calls them, just all they're literally reading from the same script, right? And it'll just like you know, these compilations will just show dozens of them the walls are closing in on the Trump administration. Or, 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 I can't think of any other good ones off the top of my head, but I've seen these compilations where they just go through. It's like people, like the local news affiliates, like the people in Philadelphia when they turn on their six o'clock news and what the anchors that they know, people in Philly, what they say. And the same thing with the people in Phoenix and the people, you know, in Cincinnati, whatever, when they're watching. So I'm not talking about just a few of the anchors on CNN and Fox that the whole country sees. I'm talking about drilling down to the quote local news because what's happened is a few companies have just consolidated and they own all these TV stations and whatever. And like the news services they subscribe to, there's been a lot of consolidation. So it's really just a few key decision makers can basically put out the script when it comes to a particular story. Like obviously you're doing your local weather and oh, there's going to be a parade next week in downtown Philly. And so 6th through 9th streets are going to be closed. So make sure you find alternate transport. Like, obviously, that's not coming from Klaus Schwab. But in terms of some of the stuff about the major news stories or how do we think about climate change or Trump really tried to steal the election. What, what are the ramifications of January 6th? That kind of stuff. You can see the anchors. Again, there's been these compilations where they are literally reading from a script dozens or perhaps hundreds of news anchors around the country just all saying word for word the same commentary in reference to some event. So this notion that, oh, come on, there couldn't be this cabal of people doing stuff behind the scenes. How could you think that after seeing what you've seen? I mean, 
we don't know exactly what goes on, but these groups like the Bilderberg Group and the World Economic Forum, right? I mean, those people are open, the World Economic Forum people are openly talking about what they're doing. They have conferences where they invite government leaders from around the world to come and they openly talk about how to provide and gain adherence to a system of uniform global governance standards and things, right? Like it's, they are almost coming out and flatly saying, we are trying to build a one world government. And, and then people, oh, come on. No, they're not. They're basically saying, this is what we're doing. Okay, let me just end with a few observations about the political angle of it. Just say like, can the politicians do anything? What are they good at? And so it's not even that they're good at waging war. So one thing you could say is U.S. politicians, the ones at the top, what are they good at? They're good at winning elections and just taking at face value. Or I guess even to be, make it more specific, they are good at making appear to the public as if they have won an election. How's that? It's even more bulletproof of a claim. But beyond that, they're very charming. I haven't met, I think the most famous person, and I didn't really meet him per se, I was in the same, I was, I was testifying at a hearing where he was the chairman. It was Barney Frank back when he was still in office. And it's really, how am I trying to describe it? There's just a way some of these people make it so that when other people meet them, the people want to, you want to help them out or something. It's amazing. Like I, I can just see how these people are really good at asking people for money and favors. And just like know how to just pull that off. So the people giving them stuff, like they feel good about it. They don't feel like they're being used or exploited. And it's really hard unless you experienced it. It's hard for me to convey to you because you might say, Barry, Frank, Bob, are you kidding? I'm telling you, you don't understand. Like what was going on? Yeah, it must have been something related to energy policy because that was the only reason I would be going. But no, actually one time Ron Paul had me for monetary policy stuff. So I don't, I don't remember what the committee was and I don't remember what stuff Barney Frank sat on. So, you know, somebody else probably could figure it out. But anyway, so I'm sitting there in my suit and, you know, I float to DC and I'm getting ready to testify before Congress. Ooh. And, but the people that we were supposed to be testifying, they had to keep running out of the room to go vote on something else that was happening down the hall. And as you know, so Barney Frank would, could keep apologizing to us you know, it's me and there's, you know, some guy from some left-wing organization because the Democrat invited him and whatever. And we're just sitting there and we can give our testimony because the people we're supposed to be talking to, like I said, they keep running out of the room and coming back. And he really made you feel like he felt bad about the situation. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And maybe he's lying, but I'm just saying he could turn it on. And it was like, oh, okay. Yeah, we're okay sitting here. Yeah, you got, you got to go vote. You know, I got stuff you got going on. You got to go vote on stuff. It's your job. Yeah. And then he came back. And so then we're going. And so our time is short. And so he was asking the speakers. He was saying, hey, I know you prepared your remarks and you each thought you were going to get, I'm making this up. You each thought you were going to get 12 minutes. But looking at the clock here, I'm going to ask you, can you please limit your remarks to nine minutes in order to leave time for everybody to speak because, okay, you get the idea. And so they start going and the first few people take their full time or they almost take their full time, right? Because they, you know what I mean? Like the temptation is you, geez, I worked long and hard on this prepared testimony. I don't want to start Xing out paragraphs on the fly. 
because you know it won't make as much sense and I'm going first, so why not? <laughs> and so, and I just kept happening and he just kept stressing and finally he goes, I'm not going to try to do a Barney Frank impression, but he said something that he was exasperated. He's, guys, I can't manufacture minutes. If you keep going over your time, then, and he like said the names of the last two witnesses, they're not going to have any time. They're here too. They need to be able to speak. So can you please, and, you know what I mean? And then the other people, like they listened to him and they kept their remarks to nine minutes or whatever it was. All right. So it, I mean, I just, the fact that I remember that he said, I can't manufacture minutes. You know what I'm saying? So like he was pleading with it, like, like letting us know how limited his power was and everything. And by doing that, he got us to obey him. Okay. I'm like, I didn't even think, I didn't fully realize that. So I was just telling you guys a story right now, like what he did. It was just, and it was like, he made it. So you wanted to please him. You know what I mean? Like, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Like he just like guys are, in, in other words, there's a sense in which it was their fault, right? He's making it look like we're doing something wrong. Well, no, the whole reason this issue happened is some idiot scheduled our hearing at the same time some other bill was getting voted on. So I don't know if it was our, you know, whoever scheduled our hearing or whoever made the, but in any event, that shouldn't have happened that we were having this conflict and yet we were. And it was our panel that was taking the brunt of it. It wasn't like the Congress people said, well, we've got these four experts who are all dolled up and, you know, they made flight arrangements and they have hotels and stuff and, Maybe they have dinner plans, so let's just make sure that they get taken care of since they're doing us a favor by coming and giving their expert testimony that we're going to pretend to listen to before we go vote the way we knew we were going to vote two weeks ago on this bill. And then, you know, we'll stay after hours and we'll postpone our vote so as not to inconvenience our distinguished guests. No, they didn't do that. They took care of themselves <laughs> and made us bear the brunt of it. But I'm just saying the way he handled it, like it was... Anyway, I was like, oh, this is why certain people not only get elected and keep getting reelected, but they rise through the ranks. And because even within the halls of Congress, there are some Congress people you've never heard of and other ones like Barney Frank that you do know who they are. I mean, why is it that certain people end up being on the coveted committees and whatever, right? So there's a pecking order even within Congress and stuff. So anyway, that was... Like I say, he was the most famous person I've ever interacted with in those situations. And I could understand seeing him in action. Like, oh, that's why I've heard of Barney Frank. Okay. All right. I guess this is a good spot to wrap up. So in conclusion, politicians are not good at running wars, but they are good at schmoozing, charming people, and in our system, winning elections or giving the appearance that they have won an election. Thanks for listening, folks. Catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.